morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, March 21st, we are studying John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. In today's text, Jesus speaks one of his I am statements within the Gospel of John. We will hear him say today, I am the true vine. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. Pastor Murray serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He is also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's always a delight to be on the program with you. So we get started today, Pastor Murray. Help us with some context. We're starting John 15 today. What should we know about the gospel and what Jesus has been speaking that will help us with these words today? Right. So we get Jesus now turning the corner uh, to those last hours before his betrayal and uh, his arrest uh, and crucifixion and, of course, resurrection. Uh, so you get you get the Passover as kind of the sign uh, that we're we're coming to that the the final you know corner of his ministry the final turn uh, you get that already in John thirteen which says now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and then it mentions the supper. Uh, and the entry of the devil into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Uh, and of course, then later uh, in the section, uh, we find out that Judas uh, leaves. And, and then, of course, uh, it is night. Uh, and it's only after that, then, that you get the I am the true vine uh, discourse. And then you get the next kind of um, time and place marker. Uh, all the way down in John 18, uh, which begins when Jesus had spoken these words. Of course, that's the high priestly prayer immediately before. Uh, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, uh, which he and his disciples entered and saw. And then Judas arrives, and, and, and then, you know, we get the arrest of Jesus. So it's, it's uh, a long section of discourse on the part of Jesus, some acts on the part of Jesus, preparing his disciples for this fateful night, uh, comforting them, strengthening them in their hope and confession, uh, getting them ready to see what the glory of God really is. And of course, it is his death in John's gospel. Uh, so it's, uh, and it's, of course, it's unusual uh, because it is uh, material in John's gospel. Uh, that has really no parallel in the in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's uh, it's pretty unique stuff. 
So in terms of the where we are in Jesus' discourse here, and he's going to say, I am the true vine at the outset of our text. And you mentioned mm-hmm. the next major you know, marker in terms of movement is coming in chapter 18. At the end of chapter 14, we talked about this briefly. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. You know, the end of 14 says, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Is there is there a break within Jesus' discourse at this point? Do you think they move anywhere? Is he starting a new topic with chapter 15? I mean, it seems a little abrupt. So I'm just curious on how you think the, the parts relate. Right. So that's a great question. Uh, most commentators speculate, and it's a little bit of speculation, that Jesus then has gone out from the upper room with his disciples and headed toward the Kidron Valley. And that the uh, the next discourses, including the high priestly prayer, are actually spoken on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I mean, I have a hard time conceiving of the high priestly prayer being delivered sort of itinerantly. Right. <laughs> you know, but whether they stopped somewhere along the way, um, you know, uh, presuming we know where the upper room is, it's not a short walk. It's not a, it's not an extremely long one either, but you have to go right across the Kidron Valley and, and up the next hill. Of course, from there, you could oversee the Temple Mount. And I'm sure that was one of the attractions of going there. Uh, but, but, you know, did they stop perhaps in the valley itself uh, where Jesus prayed uh, in the hearing of his of his uh, most intimate followers, the disciples, the, the twelve. Uh, so uh, it's it's uh, not perfectly clear right. uh, from from the text itself. But you know, if you're concerned about what you might perceive to be an inconsistency, it's fairly easily resolved in saying that this section was spoken by Jesus from 15 to the beginning of 18 uh, in that um, uh, walk toward uh, the garden. All right. So we're beginning chapter 15 today. Jesus continues to speak. This is beginning at verse one of the chapter. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." That's our text for today. That's John 15, verses 1 to 11. So, Pastor Murray, we have in this text another one of Jesus' I am statements. Perhaps the last one, if you, depending on what you think about what he says in, in chapter 18, which we'll get to in, in a little while. So, I am the true vine. Before we talk about 
the true vine aspect, just remind us of the I am statements of Jesus and why these are significant in the way that Jesus speaks in John's gospel. Sure. So even more clearly in Greek than in English, um, these egoing me statements, the I am statements are, I would say, unsubtle claims on the part of Jesus to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am of the Old Testament. Uh, Greek does not require the use of um, uh, the pronoun ego, I, uh, to say I am, uh, but he uses it very intentionally uh, throughout these statements, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door, and so on and so forth, uh, as a way of identifying himself uh, as, as, the, as the God of Sinai, as the God who causes his people to come out of uh, Egypt and parts the Red Sea. I mean, he is the saving God, uh, and he's being extremely, I think, extremely uh, explicit about this claim to be uh, Yahweh of the Old Testament. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and it's, I think, unsubtle. I don't know if that's an actual adjective, but I, I like it. I think he's, he's being unsubtle here. One, yeah. Once again... He is, I am, the name of God. That is who Jesus is. Now here he says, I am the true vine, or in verse 5, I am the vine. As we think about the what Jesus says here, maybe let's start with the Old Testament background for this image. You know, we talked about when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. There's Old Testament background here. What about for the, the image of a vine? What's the Old Testament background? Yeah, so there's a little bit more depth here to this because in the Old Testament texts that have to do um, with the vineyard of God, um, many of these cases, you have it in Isaiah 5, Isaiah 2, uh, Ezekiel 19, um, Psalm 80, um, and, and scattered here and there, they almost all tend to be um, accusatory toward the vine. I mean, there's a threat. There's, there's fire going to come upon the vineyard. There's a destruction coming upon the vineyard. Uh, it shall be devoured. Its walls shall be broken down. I mean, that's Isaiah. Um, so, so you have these kind of negative things happening to the vineyard. Well, who is the vineyard then in the Old Testament? It is Israel itself. Um, and, of course, God is complaining against the unbelief uh, of the people of Israel. Uh, and, in fact, we get our, our Good Friday improperia, the, the, um, the laments of the fallenness of God's people from these sections. What have I done to you, O my people? Uh, uh, how have I uh, offended you? Answer me. Uh, so you get that from Isaiah. Um, so it's indicative of God's people um, offending God uh, because of their unbelief, lack of confidence in God. I mean, he, he brings them across the Red Sea on dry ground, and the next day it's, what have you done for me lately, God? Yeah. Uh, he rescues them from the nations around them, um, defeats the Assyrians, and, and still they're uncertain about God's gracious care for them. Uh, so, so uh, uh, the Old Testament figure is sort of uniformly a negative. Uh, 
So it's intriguing then that Jesus takes this up and changes gears a little bit on us. I think rightfully what he's doing is portraying himself when he says, I am the vine, I am the vine, the true one, is he's saying, I am undoing everything Israel was and is, and that did deserve God's uh, condemnation and destruction. I now am coming and undoing all of that in my own person. So he becomes uh, the true vine, that is the the genuine Israel for, for the world. And then, of course, he's connecting us to become part of that Israel, as we'll see in the rest of the text. But at the beginning, he's, um, he's repairing, if you will, uh, the very laments that God spoke against his people or against God's people uh, by, by himself, you know, becoming that, that true vine. Mm. So we talked a little bit about this when Jesus called himself the good shepherd or the, the needed, the noble shepherd, that there was a, at least a hint within that of the false shepherds, certainly of Jesus own day, but also even in the old Testament where the Lord will condemn those shepherds who are not caring for his sheep. Jesus says, I've come to do that. So when Jesus calls himself the true vine here, it's an even more pronounced same kind of idea going on. What Israel failed to do in the Old Testament, Jesus now does perfectly in himself. Correct. All right. So Jesus is then the true vine. He is going to do everything that Israel could not do perfectly, and we're going to get connected to him as we will see. Before we get there, Jesus then the true vine his father is the vine dresser. Now, what's the what's the significance of the father being the vine dresser? Well, the intimate involvement uh, of of uh, the first two persons of the Trinity in the whole salvific work that Jesus is doing. Uh, he does, and of course, this is an important theme across John that the father and the son are in harmony in the mission of the son to save the world, uh, the Father sends the Son, the Son goes willingly, he comes to serve uh, God's people at, at the command of his Father, and but he goes uh, with some delight and joy, as we'll see right at the end of our text today, uh, to, to the cross for the salvation of his people and indeed for the salvation of the world. So the Father is in control of uh, this process. Um, he is the one who is, who is the farmer. I think vine dresser is sort of too pious. <laughs> I, I, I actually like the ruggedness of, of God, the farmer, uh, you know, because, it, it, and uh, Luther's commentary on this or his preaching on this is quite vivid uh, about the way in which the farmer spreads the manure, and yeah. and then he gets into an argument with with the uh, the branches. They're complaining about uh, the pruning and the the uh, the manuring and so on. This is smelly and it hurts, and and of course God is doing this so that there will be fruit. Mm, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's helpful to call him God the farmer, or even maybe the gardener might be another way yeah. of thinking about mm -hmm. it. Because I think right. you know even with the the Old Testament text that you were bringing up, the ones about Israel being the vineyard are the most closely connected. But I, I think even, you know, thinking about God, the way he starts with the Garden of Eden, 
and some of those other you know images i think maybe could could be brought to bear at least in part as you think about this especially scripturally going all the way to the book of revelation where where in the end there is yet a garden with the tree of life i I think we maybe can connect those texts to a degree. Um, so, yeah, God the farmer, God the gardener here. His job then, as Jesus continues, is to either take away branches that don't bear fruit or prune the ones that do so that they will bear more fruit. So maybe we need here not only Old Testament background, but just some, I mean, do you garden, Pastor Pastor Murray? Do you do you grow grapes or anything? What What's the point of pruning? Oh, I did it one time, and and in fact, as a child, we had a huge vegetable garden. The purpose of pruning, of course, is to make the the uh, the, the 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 branch more fruitful. Right. Um, you know, if you let if you let, uh, for example, an apple tree become overgrown, it will produce smaller apples, uh, they may not mature well and so on. It's also kind of hard to get up in a tree and actually pick them. So if you, if you keep your, your fruit tree pruned down, I mean, if you see um, uh, uh, like commercially produced fruit, uh, you, you go through those, those fields and the fruit trees are almost dwarf in size. Uh, and yet they produce large amounts of apples, pears, plums, that kind of thing. So now, of course, here I think the image is much more the um, the grape vineyard, um, which would have which would have, of course, rung very true to the to the ancient hearer. Uh, you have a grafted um, fruit there, where you have kind of a wild, strong um, vine running along the ground. And then grafted into it um, are the branches, and they become fruitful through the sort of wild power, if you will, of that rootstock. Um, but but they produce the right kind of grapes then because of their cultivation and and being brought into that into that um, into that vine. Okay, so with that image in mind, then the way Jesus applies it again to the father as the farmer is that the father is going to take away branches that don't bear fruit and then prune the ones that do so they bear more fruit. What is what is Jesus talking about? What's the, the point of this image? What's he teaching by it? Yeah, well, that that um, he will, first of all, cause what appears to be harm to uh, the branches that are connected to um, this this beautiful vine, um, and among Christians, I think it's clear that God often uses our suffering as a way of making us more fruitful. Mm. Uh, the way I explain it to catechism children is, I say, if you want to win the 100 meter dash at the Olympics. Um, and you start training now, what will the rest of your life be like until you win that gold medal? And they're pretty clear. They do understand that that training regime is about pain. Mm. Uh, it's going to be four, eight, 12 years of pain until you cross that finish line. So there's no way to um, uh, go forward in your career as a, as a 100-meter dash guy uh, unless you're willing to, to suffer. Well, this is exactly the Lord causes us to be truly fruitful in the midst of our suffering. 
Um, so uh, an example would be uh, perhaps uh, a woman who really desires to have children, but who is in fact uh, unable to have them and struggles with this a long time and then finds herself uh, able to um, help other young women in her congregation. And suddenly she turns around and goes, oh, my suffering has enabled me to be the mother of many children. And uh, so, so this is the way the Christian life often goes. Christ brings us the crosses that we need. And, and this is the pruning of our Father, cutting back what is useless uh, in our lives so that we truly become fruitful. Now, of course, uh, you also have those who have been connected to the true vine uh, and yet are unfruitful. And so they are simply removed because all they do is take away energy uh, from the plant. I mean, we're talking about the, the agriculture of the thing, but, but they are not fruitful and in fact take away the fruitfulness uh, of other branches connected to that vine. Um, and of course, the question is, you know, they're, they're at one time connected to the vine and then suddenly they have to be removed. So. People, the, the church does lose people. I think this is uh, one of the takeaways here that occasionally we do have to uh, remove uh, what, uh, what sometimes we're chided for saying, the dead wood. Well, that's exactly what they are. Uh, they're no longer fruitfully connected to the, to the true vine. Talk more about the fruit aspect of that. What, what is the fruit that the vine dresser is looking for that he's not seeing on the, the dead branches and that he's looking to nurture in the living ones? Sure. So um, I think we have to be careful that we don't narrow the meaning of the word fruit down too much here. But of course, you can't help but think of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and so on. Uh, that's certainly part of it. So there's a life of good works, but it is intimately tied to who Christ is and what he does. Again, as we'll see as we move down this text. Um, so uh, very helpfully, our, the notes for the Lutheran Study Bible say, not this is just holy deeds, but love and witness leading to new disciples. Mm. So uh, it's the whole life of, it's the whole baptized life, I would say, of the Christian as it's carried out on a day-to-day -day basis and is then used uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ uh, to, to proclaim uh, his glorious grace into the world uh, using, using the people uh, who are intimately tied to him. And in that way, they share him and the very um, sap of that uh, you know, true vine to which we're so intimately connected. So, and to go back to, to the pruning aspect of the Father's work, the the discipline, the way that He gives the cross into our lives to to help us to bear fruit. Hearing Jesus speak these words, then that provides encouragement for us and endurance when we are bearing those crosses, because we know it's not because the Father doesn't love us, but rather it's because the Father does love us, and He's seeking to to aid us and to keep us connected to Christ the Vine. Right. And, and oftentimes we only recognize this yeah. uh, long after the crisis of the cross 
in this particular case has passed. We look back and go, oh, I see what God was doing for me. Um, and I've had this experience many times in my ministry. You know, you, you complain to God about what you're going through and only maybe a year or two or three or five or 10 years later, you look back and go, oh, I understand now. Yeah. I, I wish I'd have been more faithful at the time. I would have seen it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, and that, that's really what Jesus is doing for his disciples at this very moment as they are preparing to see him betrayed, arrested, crucified. He is strengthening, strengthening them to go through that so that afterward they will believe in him having seen that his words have proved true. And of course, you know, even thinking about where these words often show up in the church here, we made this point several times now here on, on Sharper Iron, that we often hear these words first spoken on Monday, Thursday, during the season of Easter within the church year as a reminder that, you know, we, we fully come to appreciate these things after we've seen our Lord go through his own passion and resurrection. Then, then we also have that kind of aha moment along with the disciples. Oh, that's what he was talking about. And they become words that are all the more fruitful for us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I appreciate the fact that uh, our Lord um, says that he is the most blessed person and his most blessed moment is also his weakest and most downtrodden. Mm. And so we, we need to um, interpret our experience in the face of uh, what Jesus suffers so that we can say in the midst of our suffering, dear Lord, I know you mean only the best for me by this. Help me to suffer it so that it might be a benefit to me and to the glory of my Father. Mm, yeah, a fantastic prayer for us to use as Christians. We're going to keep looking at these words from Jesus in John 15 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Scott Murray this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 21st. We are studying John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Scott Murray. He serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Pastor Murray, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' words where he speaks about the fruit that the Father is looking for as the vine dresser. And you were mentioning to me during the break that the language of fruit really doesn't show up all that often in John's gospel, which I guess I didn't really think about because I'm, I'm used to that language of fruit from the scriptures. But in John's gospel, it, it's not used all that often. And, and perhaps the other place where it is used is informative to this one. So help us into the way that, that the language of fruit really draws us deeper into what Jesus is teaching here in John's gospel. Right. So in, as you said, in John's gospel, uh, he only uses the word fruit two other times other than in this um, uh, John 15. And, and the one that stands out at me 
uh, is John 12, 24, where he's talking about the hour of the Son of Man to be glorified, which, of course, is, is Jesus' language in John's gospel for his crucifixion. And he goes on and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's really talking about his own death uh, as a way of, of causing life in the world. And so I find it really intriguing that one of the only other uses of the word fruit by Jesus in John's gospel is a direct reference to his coming crucifixion, which, of course, you know, <clears throat> is going to follow within hours of the discourse in John 15. So I think there's a very tight correlation between the fruit given on the, uh, on the branches connected to the true vine, who is Christ, and the death of Christ being the fruitification, if you will, or the, the, the sap that provides uh, that fruit connected to the true vine on those branches. Uh, so it's, it's a lovely connection where we see uh, how important the death of Christ is in John's gospel. Well, and I, I think even when we look at the text going forward after what we're talking about today, where Jesus repeats his commandment, he, he tells his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. So that, mm -hmm. that fruit of love that is born in the disciples starts with the fruit that Jesus born in his, in his own death. So, I mean, I think, I think that connection that you're making bears itself out later in this text as we go forward. So I, that's a fantastic, fantastic help, Pastor Murray. As, as Jesus continues then in verse three, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is the, the language of clean that Jesus brings up here? What is he talking about? Well, um, it, it's, it's the spiritual cleansing that comes through the word. Um, I, th I think, you know, if you want to distill it down to its sort of uh, easiest way to think about it is he's simply saying, I have counted you righteous by my speech. Hmm. Uh, you, you are clean, holy uh, in my sight. Now, of course, what's interesting is uh, the, the beginning of, of this period where Jesus, in, in John's gospel, where Jesus is with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, we have the foot washing. So yeah. their feet are clean. Uh, so they already have that. Uh, and they're wholly clean. They're completely clean, uh, as Jesus tells us, uh, through his work. Um, so he's comforting them that through the power of the word, they have the whole enchilada. They are already clean. You have very clear present tense here. Um, so, uh, you know, Jesus is making sure uh, that that they're they're certain about their status in the sight of God, uh, even as they now come to this great crisis of watching him arrested and put to death. Mm. Jesus continues with language that has been heard throughout the gospel of John, abide in me and I in you. And then he connects that to this image of him being the vine and we are the branches as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Talk about the importance of abiding in Jesus and how that adds to what Jesus is saying here. Right. 
So the, the verb form here uh, is, is very decisive. It's something uh, that's very matter of fact. Um, you are abiding. This is what, what is the actual fact. Um, the other great thing about this verb to abide is it tends to emphasize the receiving of the hospitality um, from the householder. So, um, so here, uh, you know, it's a little bit baffling in a way because you would say, well, of course the branch abides in the vine. There's no other way for it to survive. Um, and some commentators, I actually read, talked about, you know, can, can the, the branch um, uh, work at staying, you know, on the vine? And this ignores the fact that quite often the verb to, to abide uh, really talks about the hospitality being received um, by, by, the, uh, by the sojourner. Um, and it's gifted to them by the householder. Uh, so, so, and it's also a huge comfort uh, to know that we who abide in him receive all of his gifts. Um, right, right now during Lent, our, um, our Lenten uh, preaching series is on abide with me. So he abides with us, uh, but more importantly, we abide in and with him. Mm. So uh, again, I think we have to see this in the context of his coming arrest and trial and, and, and crucifixion. Uh, what a, a terrible thing it was to see on the part of the disciples. And so he's giving them every ounce of comfort he possibly can. Uh, you are the ones who are abiding in me. Of that, you are quite certain. And I'm also abiding in you. Uh, and so it's, uh, so it's a wonderful reciprocity uh, between uh, Jesus and his disciples and the comfort that that gives them. Mm. So Jesus then makes plain the way that he's relating to his disciples and the way that we relate to him in that verse, as well as in verse 5, where the I am statement of Jesus is repeated and then again added to I am the vine, you are the branches. And I think this now begins to take us into that conversation that you were you're starting earlier, Pastor Murray, when we think about Jesus as the true vine, the, the Israel who gets it right, we need to be connected to him so that we live, rather than receiving all of the accusatory parts of the Old Testament that are directed toward the vineyard that failed, it, we need to be connected to the true vine, Jesus. And, and that's where he, he really starts to make it plain here in verse 5. Certainly. Um, again, as you say, we have this wonderful uh, clarity on the part of Jesus in his repeat of the ego I me, I am. Um, and, but then he's also very clear uh, about the relationship that he has with the branches. Um, and in fact, this word for branch uh, can mean um, something even more like a shoot. This is the way the the Greek word is actually used in uh, the Septuagint from time to time. Um, so there's nothing too terribly powerful about the branches, right? They're just shoots. Uh, what's their strength? What is their source? What is uh, 
you know, to what are they connected? Well, none other than the eternal Son of God, uh, who is the true vine for them. Uh, and and so, and th- again, this is why it's important to have the ego in me repeated, because we're quite clear who this this vine really is for the shoots, for the branches. Um, so so it's very powerfully put by by Jesus. Mm. So with you are the branches, then he continues, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You you talked about this, Jesus saying that language in verse four already. He's assured his disciples they are clean. This this abiding in Jesus, how does that how does that continue to happen? You even just thinking about what you said earlier about the fact that some of these branches actually die and are taken away. Like how how does that happen? How does a, a branch die? How does a branch continue to abide? Talk talk about how this actually happens. Well, uh, you get disconnected from the sap. Well, what's that? Um, it is the preaching of the word. Notice that he has said that you are clean through the word. Yeah. Um, I, I love, uh, you know, where Paul in, in Galatians 3 says, uh, you know, don't go back to the law. Mm. If you want to stay uh, it connected, you have to stay in the preaching of the gospel. Mm. So, uh, so that's part of it. And then, of course, you have uh, the visible word as given to God's people baptism, holy absolution, and of course, the paramount case, uh, the, the sacrament of the altar, uh, where, where the very lifeblood of the church flows from the altar uh, in that body and blood uh, given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. So we get dis- disconnected from this. Uh, the sap no longer flows through that uh, branch uh, it then is no longer fruitful in the truest sense, and and has to be removed for the good of the for the good of the whole plant. Mm. When in confirmation class with youth confirmation in years past, the classroom where I taught had this this ivy plant, and so when we would talk about the importance of remaining connected to Christ, that poor plant suffered from my example that I would use of it, I would, I would take a branch off of it, a leaf off of it and, and ask the students, okay, well, what, what happens to this, this branch now? And they know it's going to die. And I mean, it was, it, I, I felt bad for the plant on the one hand, but it did serve as a great example because I would sometimes do this more than one week in a row just to, to reiterate. And sometimes those, those branches would stay there in the classroom and you could see the progression of which ones had been removed earlier and which ones had, had only just been removed. The, the point that, that I made with that with them is, you know, sometimes you don't see the evidence of this right away, but anytime you cut yourself off from that sap, I like that image that you're using. Anytime you cut yourself off from that sap, there are going to be consequences, even if you don't recognize it right away. And it's, it's dangerous to the Christian to, to remove yourself from those means of grace. And that, that poor plant in that classroom served as an example of that for my students. So do you think that the plant cheered when you took the call? <laughs> <laughs> finally, saved. finally, finally. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think you're perfectly correct. And I think uh, sometimes people can sort of float along on the fumes of past Christian experiences without realizing they're really cutting themselves off from the... Uh, uh, the hodakai nun, as I say, the here and the now, 
of, of present Christian preaching, present reception of holy absolution, um, present reception of the holy sacrament of the altar. And they become sort of uh, nostalgic Christians. They remember, they remember their previous Christian practice without thinking about the fact that they're not really uh, connected with it. Um, and so this is why they have to be removed. Well, and, and, you know, so Jesus takes us to that removal in verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Those branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And that, that sounds an awful lot like last day language, the final judgment. Is there, is there more to it than that? Um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, you have kind of incipient judgments this side of the grave, and then you have final day judgment. Um, so uh, I think excommunication is something like uh, being cut off from the branch. You're already a dead, uh, you're already a dead branch and you're pruned off, perhaps, um, you know, in waiting on the final judgment, uh, which is the judgment of fire. Uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, continual maintenance of, of the plant is certainly called for uh, by Jesus here. So I don't think it's merely a reference to eternal damnation. It's certainly that. Uh, but, but we would also want to, uh, to continue to prune the, the branches for the sake of the whole um, as, as uh, the days of Christian history continue. Well, and, and this is where, you know, we maybe start to get a little beyond what Jesus is, is saying here, but we also know that when it comes to things like excommunication, that even that is done for the sake of calling that one to repentance, because the, the vine dressers is good at grafting dead branches back in. You know, I mean, so, and again, I know that maybe takes us beyond the, the image that Jesus uses right here, but that, it's, I think it's worth at least mentioning. Oh, certainly. I mean, we don't want to be in a situation where people find themselves cut off without any hope. Um, what I find is that when people defect from the church and they spend any time with me at any rate, one of the things I will say to them is that I pray that great tragedy will not be what calls them back. Mm, yeah. Um, because that's been my experience where the pruning becomes very aggressive and painful. And suddenly you're taken aback and realize uh, that you have been unfaithful and God is calling you by the tragedy you're facing to be truly repentant uh, because you're getting just a taste of that final judgment in the little judgments of, of failure and sin in this world, which I suppose all of us experience continually. The question is, how do you respond to them? Uh, do you think of them as pruning or as an out-and-out attack from the Father? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, again, the words of Jesus from the beginning of this text remind, remind us to, to receive that discipline as pruning, as the Father showing his love to keep us connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, and so that we will abide, we will live. I feel like we kind of bounced around here a little bit. Pastor Murray, I want to make sure we didn't miss any points that you wanted to make through the verses, especially 5 and 6 there. Um, let me just look at my notes. I can't say that we—oh, yeah, now, so right at the beginning of 5, I am— 
the the vine. You plural mm. uh, are the shoots. You are the branches. So um, so you have that plural. But later on, uh, as you go down, uh, you end up, for example, in six. Um, whoever abides in me, you get into singular. Mm. So. Um, on the one hand, it's a corporate experience. Of course, the church is a body uh, connected to the true head, who is Christ, just, just as the branches are connected to the, to the true vine. Um, and yet, on the other hand, uh, no one can believe for you. And so each individual is called to be faithful in his time and place uh, uh, to and, and in that way abide uh, in the Lord Jesus, uh, and and that way they they themselves can only blame themselves uh, if in fact they've been cut off and cast into the fire. As Jesus continues, then in verse seven, he talks about the one who abides in him, and he says, "If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you." Help us to make sure we understand this promise of Jesus. What's he saying here? So you have to remember that these are the people who are already declared to be clean <clears throat> through the word. They are already the people who are connected to the true vine, who is Christ, that their very life, as I said, the sap flows from him to you. Uh, and you're producing the fruit uh, that he alone can provide. Uh, and indeed, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, uh, which is a pretty decisive way to say it. Yeah. So then when we pray, how will we pray? Well, first of all, we will pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. And secondly, we will not pray against the will of God. We will always seek to pray in accordance with that will. Why? Because he's revealed it to us in his word, which is cleansing. And we are connected to the very source of that word, the very word itself, the person of Christ, who is the true vine. Um, so we should not think of this as kind of a carte blanche for us to to ask for things that are not God-pleasing. I mean, I don't think this is at all uh, what Jesus has in mind. This is our sort of broken, perverted minds at work. Think, oh, what could I ask for since I get to ask for anything and he'll do it for me. Well, that's not the way it works. Uh, there's no way to, to pray as a Christian apart from praying uh, what God's will actually is. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, made plain in this verse because Jesus says, my words abide in you. If, if the words of Jesus abide in you, those are the things you're going to be praying for. And certainly God wants to give those things, and he will. Now, Jesus right. in, in verse 8 says that this is in this way, when you bear fruit, my Father is glorified. How does, how does that work? So far, the glorification has been tied to what Jesus is going to do in his cross. How is the, the bearing of the fruit connected to that? Well, because, uh, again, I think what's in the, the background here is that you do have the pruning of the Father uh, upon the fruitful mm -hmm. branches, and, and these are, are um, uh, little crucifixions yeah. uh, for the church and her children. Um, and the result is then that 
the very crucifixion of Christ, which is the very glorification of God, also then becomes in our suffering a, a similar glorification. And the fruit comes uh, where we have borne this burden um, with, with wonderful, faithful results uh, in the proclamation of the gospel um, in, in the midst of our trial and suffering. You know, that uh, the, the person who's dying of cancer uh, spends some time expressing their confidence in God's salvation um, to their grandchildren. And what a powerful witness this is. But how does it end? Well, it ends in this uh, horrifying cancer-ridden death at the end. Um, and yet we would say, what a glory this is to God uh, that such suffering emanates in such beautiful expressions of the gospel delivered by God's people uh, to these little children. And Jesus, as he continues, makes again plain the connection that he has with his Father. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So the love from the Father to the Son goes from the Son to his disciples, and then he calls them to abide in his love and also to keep his commandments. How do all these things go together in verses 9 and 10? Sure. So I think we get kind of a... Um, uh, a hint about this from earlier on in John uh, 13, it, you know, the same kind of um, discourse where uh, uh, John tells us, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from the supper and he laid aside his outer garments. And of course, that's where he washes the feet of his disciples. So uh, the mutuality between the Father and the Son uh, is then also reflected in this intimate relationship between uh, those of us who are connected uh, to Christ um, by way of, uh, of, of being connected to the, the true branch. Um, and so, uh, so you have this love between Father and Son, uh, and then the Father loves the Son. Well, why? Because the Son lays down his life for the sheep only to take it up again. So the Father loves the Son because of his willingness uh, to, to bear this price for the sake of others. And of course, the very joy of Jesus, as we'll see in, in verse 11, uh, is that, that he suffers in this way for the sake of the community. Uh, the result then is that the son also uh, loves his disciples um, and uh, he, he will love them to the fullest that very night mm. by giving up himself uh, to the arresting authorities, declining to defend himself against unjust judgment, and then stretching out his arms to take into his possession the sins of the world and die on the cross. Um, so this, this love talk, which is, by the way, very decisive here, um, is not just some airy-fairy warm feelings in the cockles of Jesus' heart or ours, uh, but, but rather this is love that is expressed by specific intentional acts by the father and sending his son to die, the son taking the mission 
um, to die for sinners like us and then fulfilling it, uh, loving uh, his own even unto the end. Uh, so it's really uh, pretty powerful stuff when you unpack it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, of course, finally, he does want us to abide in his love. Well, how is that done? Again, through remaining connected to the sap and receiving his gifts. How does he love us? He died for us. Uh, how do we participate in that? By trusting what he did for us and by receiving the gifts that come <laughs> from that cross poured down. Uh, blood and water flowing, mingled down. And again, that's a very Johannine uh, image. Now, Pastor Murray, we have about two minutes left. And in that last verse, Jesus says he's speaking these things to his disciples so that his joy will be in them and that their joy then would be full. Use that to wrap us up. How, does, how do we have joy from all of this from Jesus? So uh, for Jesus, his joy is always centered in the needs of other people. He gives himself into death to deliver true joy to others. We, of course, in our culture have dumbed down joy into some kind of mere happiness, uh, and, and this is simply missing the mark. Uh, I do think that writer to the Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, we usually go on from there, but I think his endurance of the cross is, in fact, the joy set before him. Mm. And, and why is it joyous for him? Because of the benefit for us. So he's looking for the joy uh, of his cross to be delivered to his disciples. He wants his joy to be in them. And then he wants that joy to be fulfilled. Well, how does that happen? Because they will also take up their cross uh, in their ministry and face persecution and suffering for the sake of the church and for the needs of those to whom they proclaim. So uh, our joy then also becomes full by our participating with Christ by faith in his suffering and death. And then by our taking up our cross and suffering for the sake of the people whom we serve, to whom we proclaim, uh, to whom we, we deliver the gifts of God in preaching and sacraments. So it's pretty comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Pastor Scott Murray is pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He's also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's been helping us today to study John 15, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Murray, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure to be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.